Our theme at Northside in 2017 is Light of Life. That theme, as you probably know, or if you don't know, I'll remind you, comes from John chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we've been really emphasizing not just our personal relationship with Jesus this year, but also how we can take it into, put it into practice outside of these walls. And I think that's very important, and Northsiders have risen to the occasion. One such occasion was just this last week. On this very stage was a bucket full of pennies and coins. Uh, and I just want to tell you I am so proud of what the children and all of the families did. $923.76 is an amazing contribution. That's going to go to the folks and the work at Simple House. And they can put that money and they can stretch those dollars so far to use them to buy food and commodities uh, that will help hurting people. And so thank you from the bottom of my heart, uh, and not just for those who gave last Sunday, but for those who have volunteered and who are donating their dollars and time continually this year as well. It's a great work being done. That's not to brag on us. That's to brag on God, who does all of that work. And again, I will reemphasize, I am so glad I didn't do a matching fund. Uh, that's about 300 chicken sandwiches and... Uh, We are on Sunday mornings in a series called Three Days, where we're simply looking at the one weekend in all of human history that really changed the world. And we're looking at not just that weekend, but how it applies in in our days, in our lives today. I believe the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, as Apostle Paul said, are of first importance and they are primary not just here, but as we go out, we portray, we live out daily the death, the burial, the resurrection of our risen Lord. Last week we discussed day one, which is death, and we looked at the day of Jesus' death. We looked at Luke's account from Luke chapter 23. And we said, you know, the cross is a familiar place, and maybe that's the problem. We come there all too easily. We come to, to there uh, so much that it becomes familiar and routine. And what we need to remember is that the cross, as cruel as it was, as difficult as it was, was a place that God had always planned for his son to go. That it was purposed in his heart to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Because he wanted to do that? No. Because he loved you that much. That's how much value you have. Today, we're going to look at, uh, of the story of the three days, this one is probably the most skipped over. Uh, but I think there is a deep message for us and an application that we can get and a, and a lesson that we should learn. So I hope that you'll join me. You'll open your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 38 is the verse that was just read verse, through verses 42. As I'll turn, as you turn there, I'll take you back to a place in time. About 30 years ago, the arguments had been getting louder and more frequent. And uh, that particular night, I was awoken 
by the sound of my parents arguing. It got louder, and finally Dad came into the room very quickly and very abruptly. And he said, I love you, but I'm leaving. Thirty years later, when I revisit that moment in my mind, it's hard. Because I didn't see it coming. That was the first and most memorable time when I was blindsided by something that hit really hard. A couple of years later, we had to move. I remember the day coming home on the school bus and seeing a, a giant yellow Century 21 real estate sign in the yard. And I was crushed. Because it meant uh, had to move. Had to leave my friends behind. And the thing that hurt the most was I didn't see it coming. Those are just a couple, certainly not the last times I experienced in life when something happened and you didn't see it coming. Maybe it was an illness that you got that you went to the doctor for a routine checkup and they said, this is bigger than routine. And you're just blindsided. Or maybe someone you love loses their life or takes their life. And it just hits you like a truck because you didn't see it coming. Or the boss asks you into the office and you think you're getting ready to receive a promotion. They say, I hate to do this, but we got to let you go. It's hard because you don't see it coming. It's those don't see it coming kind of moments that I think are crucial and pivotal in our faith and relationship with God. Because in the time when we cannot trust anything else, when the mountains and the hills fall, when the very earth gives way under us, where do we go? The psalmist says, my, my, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It was October 12th, 2010. I remember that day very well because our daughter was coming into the world. And uh, that was supposed to be a pretty routine thing. But when they were in the room and the doctors were hooking up the monitors, and they said, well, we're just kind of looking at the baby's heartbeat. And I said, oh, is, that, is there a problem or something? They said, no, it's not. We're just kind of paying attention. We're just watching. We just don't want this little line to drop, and almost instantaneously, at the moment she said that, that little line did one of these. And the lady stopped smiling, and a whole bunch of people came into that room. And I got scared, because I didn't see it coming. And they said, we may, have to, we may have to do surgery, and so they got her ready, and they whisked her away. And they took her down to surgery and they told me to get my garbs on and I did what I do when I'm thinking. I did this. I just back and forth. I don't know if you can wear a path in linoleum, but if you can, I did. And I'm doing one of these and I'm thinking. But mostly I'm talking to God and I'm saying, God, I didn't see this coming. 
Now, those are a few of my stories, but every person in here has that story. Every single one of you. If you have a story like that, can I hear an oh yeah? And you get to that point where the thing happens that you didn't plan to happen. And now, if you can go back to that moment, you're experiencing just an inkling of what Saturday was like. You see, Jesus was supposed to be the answer. Jesus was supposed to be the king. They had watched him teach as no one had taught. They had watched him do miracles that no one could explain. They watched him as he went from town to town and crowds grew larger and larger. And no one could stop him. No one could answer him. And indeed, you know, in their minds, they must have said, we have hitched our wagon to the right star. They are going to make him king. Oh, Jesus was a king, but a very different kind of king than they imagined. And as they beat him and mocked him and pulled that crown of thorns upon his precious head, the disciples were blindsided. They didn't see it coming. As you read through John chapter 19, later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body. And now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. Think about that. Taking Jesus' body, as they looked and saw his hands with holes in them, those hands that had calmed the storm, those hands that had made the blind to see, those hands that had touched the leper. As they looked at his feet, and they saw the holes there, and they remembered all the journeys that they had taken, the miles that they had gone together, and the time when he had taken a knee and washed their own feet. I'm sure that lifeless body killed something more within them than within him. It was the end. It was the death of their hope as they took that life, lifeless, limp body and did something they didn't plan to do. And that was prepare to bury their friend, their teacher, their rabbi, their master. They didn't see it coming. So they wrapped it. With spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. You see, the day of preparation was a special day because it was the day before the Sabbath. You remember the Sabbath. They couldn't do any work. They couldn't go any fair fair amount of distance. They couldn't conduct any business. They couldn't do all the normal things. And so to take a day like that, you have to have a day just to prepare for the act of resting. And this is what they did. Instead of preparing in that way, they prepared by taking the body of their friend. The first thing that we realize very quickly is that the disciples were scared. Mark chapter 14, verse 50, in Mark's account, it says that the disciples all left him 
and fled. The word there meaning uh, fleeing with a purpose. If you have ever experienced a Kansas tornado that's been closer than a half a mile to you, you understand the idea of the word fled. Fleeing with a purpose and intenseness. Several years ago, we lived in Valley Center and there was a, a chemical plant there. And the chemical plant actually had a major explosion. And there was a boom that shook the entire town. I was at a camp that summer. And so I got the call later. Christy described it. She said she heard the boom. She felt things shake. She looked out into through the windows toward the direction of the noise and saw a huge a tanker blowing up into the air and her instinctive motherly reaction and instincts kicked in and she said, we're getting out of here. And she took Tyler and they left and they got out. that fleeing is that that kind of fled. The disciples weren't just shuffling along. They were saying, we got to get out of here because they're going to kill not only kill him, they're going to kill us, too. They were scared. A lot of times those things that hit you from the blue scare you. The day between Christ's crucifixion and resurrection surely was a time of grief, shock, fear, disillusionment, as the disciples tried to understand what had just taken place. As they had just watched their friend, their master, their rabbi, their teacher, their king murdered. They didn't see it coming. John's account in chapter 20 verse 19 on tells us this about Sunday. It says the disciples were together with the doors locked out of fear for the Jewish leaders. They were permeated. They were saturated. They were steeped in fear. This wasn't just your normal afraid. You see, for the first time, they didn't have the guy with them who had all the answers. They couldn't go to Jesus for an explanation. They, they weren't with the guy who could make it all right. And they were scared. Secondly, the tomb was secure. You'll turn to Matthew chapter 27 on this one. Matthew chapter 27 is where uh, we see one of the very few accounts in the Gospels of Saturday. And this is what Matthew writes. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. This verse 63, sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So make the tomb as secure as you know how. Otherwise... His disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now those are things we may not understand, but the Roman guard was the... CIA of the day. I mean, it was the secret service. It was you were not getting past these guys. They didn't just look intimidating. They were intimidating. And there was usually, depending on on the historical records, somewhere between three and five of them. And their their job was to stand guard, not to sleep, not to rest, but to focus intently on the purpose of guarding the thing which they were assigned to protect on their lives. 
And if they didn't do it, they would, it would cost them their lives. The tomb was secure. It was affixed with a seal of Rome, uh, perhaps by ropes or perhaps just with the seal itself to remind them that no one was to go into this place. What they didn't count on was anyone coming out of that place. But that's next week's sermon. The disciples were scared. The tomb was secured. And the world was silent. We remember that this second day is a Sabbath day. Luke chapter 23, verse 56, the good doctor writes, They went home and prayed and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the command. I can hardly think of something so agonizing as to watch what they just watched on Friday and then proceed all the way to Saturday where the only thing they were allowed to do by law was to be still. To do the last thing in the world that they wanted to do. That history of Sabbath is pretty well known in the Jewish history. It started on day seven. Genesis tells us that the Lord rested. It was not that the father was tired, that he was worn out. God didn't need a nap. God, in fact, was finished. Resting. Completion is the idea. That he was done. That he had, that he had fulfilled every part and purpose of all creation. And it's interesting. That just one day prior to this day, Jesus uttered the words, it is finished. Not that he was finished, but that the work was finished. That the thing which God had planned to do from the beginning had now seen its culmination and its zenith in this very moment. It is finished. The religious world says no, you gotta do more. You gotta try harder. You gotta be better. But Jesus says it is finished. And as they rested on the Sabbath, they may not have understood that the work was finished, but they would realize it later. That Saturday had to been, had to have been deafening, deafening, really silent. <laughs> no crowds. Very few people meandering about the city. Disciples who are stunned and just kind of walking around like zombies. It was a quiet day, I have no doubt. And what made it the most quiet is the absence of the voice of their friend Jesus. Well, there are two takeaways that I think we can get from all of this from day two. First... God's silence is not God's absence. You've all had a Saturday, and you probably have too, but if you haven't, let me tell you, you will. Saturday's coming. And if you haven't experienced it, this, you just want to turn to Psalm chapter 109. Psalm 109, verse 1. The psalmist says, O God of my praise, do not be silent. There are days coming when it will seem like the voice of God is very silent. It will seem most deafening when you come to those moments that you don't see coming. When the silence of God is very pronounced. 
And when you come to those silent periods, let me ask you to do a couple of things. One, you got to remember that God's silence is not God's absence. Just because you don't hear him doesn't mean he doesn't hear you. Just because you don't see him working does not mean he is not at work. You got to trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You got to understand this when you when you get to those Saturday moments. When things don't go according to the plan, when you struggle, you need to remember that God has a better plan for you than even you do, than even you could understand. And so just because he's silent doesn't mean he's not there or that he doesn't care. You know Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God knows best. And if you're at a silent Saturday, I just need to ask you to trust him. He's still there. He hasn't left. The only way for God to leave you is if you leave him. So don't do that. Number two, you got to expect. All of us at some point will come to a Saturday. But we have to know that Sunday's coming. Psalm chapter 13, verse 11. The psalmist writes this. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day with sorrow forever in my heart? If you've been to a Saturday, if you are on a Saturday, you've got to trust him that he's there. And you've got to expect that better things are coming. Oh, for the disciples to give up on Saturday. I often wonder if they're anywhere they did. The scripture doesn't record it, but I wonder. I just wonder. If any of them gave up on Saturday, oh, what they would have missed out on. Oh, what glory they would have missed out on if they had stayed locked behind those doors forever. Henry Blackaby said this, and I I love it. He said, you can respond to the silence of God in two ways. One response is for you to go into depression, a sense of guilt, a sense of self-condemnation, a sense of giving up. The other response is to have an expectation That God is about to bring you to a deeper knowledge of himself. Those two responses are as different as night and day. Henry didn't say this. James did. James chapter 4 verse 8. He said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And there's no better place to draw closer to him than on the silence of Saturday. The second is and last. that The last day is not the end. Every funeral reminds us that that as we come to a point where we I just did one yesterday, we come to a point of someone's last day. Most everyone in the audience, if they're normal, is is wondering and thinking about their own last day. We know that we're all going to come to that. 
But if you're in Christ, your last day will not be your last day. Weeping may come for a night, but joy, joy, unspeakable joy will come in the morning. And that's our hope. And that's our promise to those of us in Christ. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? But the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, they couldn't see the victory, but the victory was theirs. And just because you can't see the victory yet doesn't mean the victory's not there. It's just not there yet. In the big picture, all of us are still on Saturday. The death of the cross was 2,000 years ago. Death is still within us. And the final resurrection day is just ahead. Do you think about that? We are closer now than we've ever been to the return of Jesus. We are closer now than we've ever been to seeing the promise revealed. Saturday was the end of their week. But you know what? It was not the end of their world. And it's not the end of yours either. And this morning, I want to ask you, are you ready? Are you ready for the second return of Jesus? Are you ready for his reappearing? Because if you're not, if you haven't chosen to follow him, if you haven't put sin behind you and the cross before you, if you haven't chosen to be immersed with him in the waters of baptism, you're not ready. The good news is, though, you can get ready. And you can do that right now this morning. And if maybe you've become disillusioned and you've got stuck on Saturday and you've been despondent and just almost given up and you'd like us to pray with you and help you and encourage you and give you back your hope, we want to do that. Whatever your need might be this morning, you can come and we'll meet you together as we stand and sing.